So their plans to host the 1916 Olympics fell apart with World War I and their exclusion from competing until 1928. Germany's reintegration into the international sporting community was a difficult process. However, it took a huge leap in 1931 at the IOC Congress in Weimar, Germany, when Berlin was awarded the 1936 Games. On the 24th of January 1933, the local organizing committee met for the first time. Six days later, Adolf Hitler was sworn in as Reich Chancellor. The Olympic rings were in the talons of the German eagle. This was Hitler's Olympics. It's like, it's so nice because, you know, 2021 couldn't be more different to 1936. I mean, then there was this looming shadow of fascism. Um, there was soon to be uh, global catastrophes taking over the entire world. And yeah, 2021 is so different. Also, it's an odd number year. <laughs> so different, Chris. <laughs> so different. It's really different. <laughs> What was the last year we had an odd year Olympic? Uh, was it the last ancient Olympics? Yes, it was. And you should know this from our lost episode that has never been broadcast. Oh, it's not lost. About the ancient... Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have it. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Um, regardless, what year was it? Oh, I don't know. Do you know? 393, 393 AD was the last time we had an odd year Olympics. And probably. As things currently stand, we are going to have an odd year Olympics this year. Yeah. As of recording on the 12th of January, the Olympics in Tokyo 2021 is happening. Are you absolutely confident? I'm feeling as confident as the organizers of the 1940 Tokyo Olympics probably felt at the time of the Berlin Games. Yes. Point. Yeah, that is that is fairly confident. Um, I would recommend every single listener and ourselves to just now touch wood. <laughs> That's going to happen. Either way, Olympipod will continue. And uh, it's nice to be back. Now, this is going to be a tricky episode, I believe. <laughs> we could talk for hours about this, but uh, we're going to do our best to pick out a few of the most interesting stories from these games. And I think most of my inspiration for this podcast comes from Lenny Riefenstahl's film Olympia. Have you seen it, Ruth? I haven't, but I read a little bit about it in David Goldblatt's The Games. He talks a little bit about how the 1932 and 1936 Olympics were really the first ones to make a, a, a quite a big mark on cinema. This two-part extravaganza, which I think in total is about three and a half hours to four hours long. I watched the first part back in 2020, in about November time. I watched the second part in uh, the days leading up to this. And yeah, it was the first uh, documentary feature film of the Olympics. So many like groundbreaking features, advanced motion picture techniques, which became the standard eventually, but really were ahead of their time. Things like smash cuts, extreme, now I mean extreme close-ups, uh, tracking shot rails within the bleachers uh, and stuff like that. The techniques were brilliant and it made the film really, really good. Despite its outrageous political agenda, 
uh, has been admired throughout the years. In fact, Time Magazine put it in their all-time 100 movies. So even to this day, it is very much uh, respected. And it begins in an interesting fashion. Picture this, Ruth. Nude, slow-motion, javelin throwing. Can you like picture it? Like the original Olympics. Like the original Olympics. Maybe not like the original Olympics was the nude women doing some kind of joint stretching exercise. I hear Chris now. That just seems a bit scandalous. Now, was Pierre de Coubertin about at this stage? I'm pretty sure he wasn't. And after all this nudity, we had the very first torch relay montage. And because the torch relay, believe it or not, was devised by the Germans for these games. And so they had this great overview of the uh, torch relay from Athens all the way through Southeast Europe, through Sofia, into Hungary, Vienna, Prague, and then eventually into Berlin. But just when you think the nudity is over at the end of the first part, you have Olympia Part 2, Festival of Beauty. More like Festival of Nudity. (gasps) It opens with a bunch of lads hopping out of a lake and into a sauna with nothing hidden from the camera whatsoever, and then slow motion massaging and enjoying water being poured over their faces. Interesting. Now, Chris, I'm just going to go back a little bit because you said that Pierre de Coubertin was not about. To clarify, he was honorary president of the IOC during these games, but he did die on the 2nd of September, 1937, at the sprightly age of 74, of a heart attack. And one can only assume it was because of these two films. Well, believe it or not, besides all that nudity, there was a hell of a lot of sport in it as well. And they captured it brilliantly, I have to say. It gave you a true feel for what elite sport in the 1930s looked like. And for that, I am grateful. Of course, it was incredibly controversial due to its political context. But uh, a great pair of films, nonetheless. And I'll be dipping in and out of it as we go through the sports over the next 50 minutes or so. He said that Berlin was awarded this. What what year is it awarded, the Games? 1931. 1931. Do you remember some of the other cities that made a bid? No. (laughs) (laughs) I know a lot of cities wanted to bid originally. Yep. So, so it was an exciting list of names. We have Budapest, um, Alexandria, Montevideo and Buenos Aires. Um, a few of the more familiar ones that would be in later ones were Helsinki, Rome, Barcelona and Dublin. Dublin was in the mix for a little bit, Chris. For a little bit, I think, is the important bit. For a little bit. bit. Yeah. But I wonder, like, could we have sorted a lot of things out had Dublin just been awarded the Olympics? It wouldn't have been as grand, but, you know. Definitely wouldn't have been as grand. The funny thing is, like, Hitler and his Nazi pals didn't really want the Olympics at the beginning. They saw it as the Jews and the Freemasons collaborating in this weird sporting event which undermined everything they believed in and was only going to help support all of their enemies around the world. But eventually they really embraced it. Yeah, took it in their stride. Hitler wanted to build this like incredible 500,000 seat arena with a track which had nothing to do with standards at the time. And when somebody said to him, you know what, Adolf, actually, 
that track won't actually work because it doesn't comply with regulations. He said, don't worry about it. Berlin is going to host every single Olympic Games from now on. So we're just going to make the rules ourselves. Actually, one of the other cities that made a bid was Barcelona, which at the time was communist. And they decided that absolutely not. They weren't going to go to Berlin to this uh, fascist regime. So they prepared to uh, have their own alternative games in 1936, uh, one f- for all the workers of the world. And it, it had quite a good uh, take-up. Obviously had the support of the Soviet Union. I believe Ireland was going to go. Um, so in that case, very well represented. Um, Ireland, of course, was one of the nations that boycotted Berlin as well. There was quite a few boycotts from around the world, which is kind of surprising from Ireland because it wasn't exactly known for its scruples in the 30s and 40s. Um, but perhaps they had a very good team ready to go to Barcelona. But then the Spanish Civil War happened, so it never went ahead. Yeah. We only we only got Berlin. Well, and even in that one, there was going to be like a, a Catalan team and a Basque team for the first time. And yeah, it seemed to have a lot of support. And we have actually spoken about the rise of uh, of the workers and the, the lower classes in the 20s. And uh, no surprise to see their attempts to have their own games before. What happened? A civil war. A civil war. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, as you were saying, that during the 20s, a lot of workers groups uh, did come together to have sporting leagues and clubs. The same was in Germany. Uh, but once Hitler decided that he did want to have the Olympics after all, all of those were nationalised and all Jews expelled from competitions and clubs. They did have a couple of token Jews in the end, uh, Germany, in their great attempts to uh, appease the international sporting community. And uh, among all of the attempts to derail the Olympics happening and all of the potential boycotts, including the USA, which seemed to be pretty much on the verge of boycotting these games. Thankfully, Avery Brundage came to the rescue. Uh. He went to Germany and interviewed a bunch of uh, Jewish athletes under careful supervision. And he came to the conclusion that actually, you know what? Nothing is going on over there. There is no anti-Semitism in Germany And it's going to be fine, lads. Let's just go over to Berlin and see what happens. He boasted to the Germans that his own Chicago sports club excluded Jews. So, you know, there was a bit of an issue. Um, This was a bit of a global issue. Wasn't just in Germany. Yes, indeed. And as we've heard from our previous Olympipod from 1932, Avery Brundage is an arsehole. Yeah, do you know what... (laughs) Yeah, do you know what the thing is? You know, in previous Olympopods, we've had scumbags of the week, and yeah, I don't think this Olympopod will be handing out that award. No, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> this one, and if you need us to say it, then the issue is you. <laughs> Although Ireland was one of the teams that boycotted this games, so there was one Irish person in attendance. Mm. That we know for certain. The grandfather of the current Le Président de Commune Nebul Vauher and uh, previous guest of the show, David O'Doherty. His grandfather was in attendance yes. and gave a special toast to Hitler. My grandfather, this is actually true, guys, had won the Tolshin Games in 34 and went to the 36 Olympics because Ireland didn't send a team. 
uh, he went as a fake journalist from an Irish language magazine and really thought Hitler was doing a great job and stood up at a large dinner, apparently, uh, with the world's media there. And when they put the mic in his face, he said, uh, I hope uh, Mr. De Valera can do as good a job as Mr. Hitler has done with these autobans. So that's my family and athletics. <laughs> Since we're talking about nationalism, let's talk about the marathon. Oh, please. Sun Ki-chung was born in what is now Sinuju a city located in present-day North Korea. Uh, but at the time, the entire Korean peninsula was under the control of the Japanese Empire, and both uh, Ki-chung and his compatriot Nam Sung-yung had to compete under the Japanese flag. His name was changed uh, to Sun Katei. Um, he had set the world record in a marathon the year before in Tokyo, and he won this Olympic marathon fairly easily as well, setting a new Olympic record. His teammate, Nam Sung-yung, took the bronze. He did, however, refuse to recognise the Japanese anthem when he took to the podium. And he later told uh, reporters that he felt great shame at having represented Japan. It caused political fury at home too. One Korean newspaper edited out the Japanese flag in the image of Ki-chung, accepting his gold, me gold medal. This resulted in a harsh crackdown of Korean press by the Japanese and included eight arrests of editors. In 2011, the IOC changed his nationality on his Olympic profile to Korean, though his medal is still listed as Japan's. Which, like, if they change that, that's really opening a can of worms for a lot of early medals. So I don't think it's right, but I understand uh, why that is staying as Japan's medal. <laughs> Yes, fair enough. Ireland would get a lot more gold if we could uh, do a few retrospectives. Yeah, we'd be flying up the medal table. In later life, he became a famed coach and he coached a number of notable Korean Olympians. He also carried the Olympic flame into the arena in Seoul at the opening ceremony for the 1988 Games. Oh, nice. There's one small other story, which is that along with his gold medal, he also won a Corinthian helmet which was two or 3,000 years old, uh, which had been donated by a newspaper in Athens. But, of course, as we know, the IOC still had a bee in their collective bonnets about amateurism and was instead placed in a Berlin museum for 50 years. It was finally presented to Sun in 1986, and he then donated it to the National Museum of Korea, where it remains today. I like how you used to get like little added things. Remember um, in Stockholm... Somebody got a Viking boat. Yes. But it'd be like now, like um, in 2012, Usain Bolt, you're so cool. Get this gold medal and Stonehenge. <laughs> yes. Or a Spice Girl. Or a Spice Girl. Yeah, yes. we, like, we should definitely think about, do we want to bring this tradition back? Mm. Just, just for some very su select sports. Do you know what? It, like when I was reading into this marathon, we've we've had some very eventful marathons in our mm. time. This marathon, uh, they say the conditions were clear, not too warm. Everyone was kind of fine. Everyone knew where they were running. There were no like rabid dogs chasing anyone. Nobody like got a car somewhere. It was all just very straightforward. People ran in a in a direction. They ran fairly good times. They set some records. Boom. Nationalism. <laughs> yeah, uh, from what I recall of the Olympia film, it was in part one and nothing really stands out to me about it. I think that's a good sign. So it just looked like a good old, well-ran, 
marathon. From the longest event in the track and field to the shortest and the men's 100 meters and undoubtedly the at least when it comes to on field achievements the most decorated athlete at these games won jesse owens he won four olympic gold medals at these games he was a big favorite coming into the games as he had set three world records and tied another world record in less than an hour in 1935 at a college track meet in michigan and a feat that has never been equaled and has been called the greatest 45 minutes ever in sport so big big expectations for jesse owens coming into the 36 games it all began for him on august 3rd when he won the gold in the 100 meter and he set a new world record for the race in the day before in the semifinals. And by the end of that week, he'd also won the long jump, the 200 meters, and also the 4 by 100 meter relay as part of the US team. He was a bit of a star within the arena itself and also within the Olympic Village as uh, rivals awed and crowded around his Olympic cabana to go and feel his muscles and get his autograph. So a big, a big favorite among his fellow athletes. And in Cleveland, Governor Martin L. Davy decreed a Jesse Owens day for his brilliant achievements. Of course, this was not exactly part of the plan for Hitler and the uh, Nazi party for these games because they had hoped and planned for a a bunch of white European guys to win everything. And having a black American was really not part of the agenda. They uh, tried to explain his victory by calling him and uh, him and the rest of the black American team as auxiliary athletes, uh, and that they weren't really people. They were closer to animals than people. And if they brought in gazelles or other kind of animals to... Uh, take part in these races that they might also have won so incredibly disgraceful uh, their approach to this but nevertheless uh, in the crowd it seems based on the film that his achievements were very well received and uh, he had a big part to play in disproving hitler's silly theories about the aryan race these nazis they seem they seem like they might be racists i, I think you might be right not just yeah just you know i'm i'm, I'm just really just and, throwing and, it out there you know we're, we're we're just throwing it out there i know we're all about the discourse now and yeah i just i don't think they sound like a good bunch not of lads really just want to go on the record <laughs> this olympopod does not condone the 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 handling of the 1936 olympics no absolutely not in the long jump things were not going so well at the beginning for Jesse Owens that he had fouled in his first two attempts in qualification. And it's a story that went around for a long time that one of his biggest rivals in the long jump, a German Karl Ludwig Long, or Luz Long, actually helped him. As he said that he should set his run one meter behind where it currently was and take off one meter behind because there was no way he could foul that way and he was easily talented enough to qualify. Owens did then qualify and they ended up winning the gold just ahead of Long. However, eventually Jesse Owens said that this actually didn't happen. Ah, oh, I hate 
hate when people disprove yeah, stories. Yeah, he said they actually only oh, properly wow. met after the competition. However, oh. not to take away from it, because they actually got on very well. They posed together for photos. They walked arm in arm into the dressing room afterwards as well. And this was a big moment. As Jesse Owens himself said, it took a lot of courage for him to befriend me in front of Hitler. I would melt down all the medals and cups I have won and they wouldn't be a plating on the 24 carat friendship that I felt for Luz Long at that moment. Aww. Now, isn't that nice? Shortly after that, when World War II took place, Luz Long served and uh, he was wounded and died in a British military hospital. He was writing during this time uh, quite a bit back and forth with Owens and uh, Long wrote to Owens in what he believed would be his last letter and he asked him to contact his son after the war to tell him about his father and what times were like when we were not separated by war. So after the war, Jesse Owens traveled to Germany to meet Carl Long, Luz Long's son. They became very good friends. He actually served as Carl Long's best man at his wedding. That's a lovely story. We don't usually get those. <laughs> like, I, I like, yeah, and particularly considering it's 1936 Berlin. It, yeah, it's a very nice story. Yeah, I think so too. It makes me wish that I had researched some heartwarming stories. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's kind of why I wanted to bring this one in early, because I feel like there's going to be a lot of not-so-heartwarming stories as we continue. I'm going to stay on the track and field mm. and talk about Betty Robinson, who uh, was competing in the 4x100 relay. She was the first ever winner of the Women's Olympic 100 meter race when she won it in Amsterdam in 1928. And at those games as well, she also won silver in the women's 4 by 100 She never made it to the 1932 games because in 1931, she was in a horrific plane crash, which we mentioned uh, in our 1928 Amsterdam Olympopod. She was recovered from the wreckage. And when she was recovered, she was un unconscious and assumed dead. From one account, a rescuer found her among Bodies lay underneath the rubble when rescuers reached them. They were unconscious, noting her boat broken left arm, mangled left leg, an eight-inch gash across her forehead. The man who pulled Robinson from the debris anticipated the worst. He placed the broken body in the trunk of his car and drove her to an old people's home because he had a friend there who was an undertaker and he thought she was dying. So... She she was injured. She mm. was injured. She spent the next 11 weeks drifting in and out of consciousness. She was eventually able to be moved out of her bed because at the time the media was reporting on, you know, this golden girl being completely uh, unable to move at all. And it would actually take her another six months for her to be able to get out of her wheelchair and another two years before she could confidently walk. So she did walk again and indeed she even ran again. And she qualified for the 1936 uh, Games. She was on the 4x100 women's team, as I said, because her injuries were so bad, she was unable to crouch down at the starting line. So she, was, she wasn't she was able to compete in any other race. She had, to, she had to be in a race where she could stand up from the start. And she was um, a short distance runner. They got the gold, beating the home favourites, uh, the Germans who dropped their baton. And that was a bit of a controversy in itself for the Germans because going into this race, Germany had actually set the world record in the heats the day before. So they were the favorites coming into this one. Uh, but they changed their running order. They messed 
with a winning formula because that what they wanted to do was build what they felt would be an unassailable lead over the USA heading into the final leg because they were scared of the fourth runner from the USA, Helen Stevens, who had won the 100-meter race earlier at these games. So Ilsa Durfeldt was on the last leg instead of the third leg, as she usually was. And with a bit more fear than she usually would have, particularly with Helen Stevens about to run beside her, she went off a bit too early. And by the time the baton got to her, she was going too fast and fumbled it and destroyed their chances of winning gold. Because as you probably see from the film, they were way, way ahead. I think they were a good five to ten meters ahead going into that last leg. And uh, really, they they lost it for themselves. Talking about home favorites, there was a little bit of a controversy that I haven't really looked into with the equestrianism. Because the Germans did take a clean sweep in individual dressage, team dressage, individual eventing, team eventing, individual jumping, team jumping. Germany got all the medals, uh, got all the gold medals. And I think it's the only time in Olympic history when one team has has done that. There's there's reports of controversy. I'm not quite sure uh, what the controversy is. There's talk of a fourth fence in the cross-country course in the eventing competition which seemed to result in a lot of falls for non-germans but i'm not i'm not really sure what the accusation is but anyway the germans did very well in that cross-country is is shown in the film as well and there's one section where they they just show horses and men falling over over and over again so this could be that that particular fence but one of the germans themselves <laughs> bear with me with this name lieutenant konrad freiherr von wangenheim actually fell victim to this fence so there was a german who fell and not only did he fall but he dislocated his left arm ah. dislocated his left arm on landing however he knew that if he didn't finish it, Germany would have been disqualified. Oh. So he got back up and managed to get through the remaining 32 obstacles without incurring a single fault. Oh, with well done, Germany. a dislocated Germany. left arm. This wasn't the end of it because they had to go into the show jumping the following day. And once again, if he did not ride, Germany would have been disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, entered the stadium with his left arm in a sling. And just before he mounted the horse, the sling was removed to reveal a tightly bound arm. On uh, one of their very first fences, his horse pulled up and threw him off the horse and landed on him. <laughs> Your horse doesn't like you. Take the hint. But to the relief of the crowd, moments later, von Wangenheim managed to get up from beneath the horse. People feared for a moment that his horse, Kurfürst, was dead. But then suddenly the horse sprang back to life. <laughs> von Wangenheim remounted and once again completed the remainder of the course without another fault. And Germany won the gold medal. If there was controversy about setting up others for failure... At least one of their own managed to uh, really hurt himself. But a <laughs> courageous act from Lieutenant von Wangenheim to uh, keep going for another day and a half and uh, help win the gold for that German team. The 1932 Olympic gold medal holder, Takita Nishi, fell off his horse mid-course 
Oh. His, his horse Uranus and uh, yeah the, there seems to have been speculation that maybe he did it on purpose um, or benefit Uranus did it on purpose yeah, yeah yeah Uranus or Lieutenant Colonel Nishi mm-hmm. the only reason I mention this is because I sometimes like to bring in a little bit of Wikipedia facts oh <laughs> and um, yeah th- there's this one line on this about uh, Takichi Nishi and it says Lieutenant Colonel Nishi would go on to command a tank regiment um, in the Battle of Iwo Jima. Uranus remains alive throughout the war, but his fate is unknown. I'm going to go out on a limb uh, here, Chris, and say that he's dead. <laughs> that horse is dead, Chris. <laughs> Last spotted residing in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> <laughs> that horse is dead. Uranus is dead, Chris. We seem to spend a lot of time talking about football on this Olympopod, but that's because in the early Olympics, like there was a lot of dodgy refs about. We've seen a few. But Ruth, wasn't football not even in the last Olympics? Chris, like, yeah, because there's a lot of dodgy shit going down. But it's back. At football at the Olympics. It's back, it's back, it's back. Germany, we're feeling confident. That, that this could possibly be a medal. So they brought it back. The first, the, I mean, the major issue, right, came about during the quarterfinals between Austria and Peru. Mm. It was two all after normal time, with Peru scoring two more in extra time. 4-2 after extra time. That's the official word anyway, because Peru actually scored five goals during extra time, uh, but three of them were disallowed by the ref. Grant. No problem. They've still got the win. They're still 4-2. Fine. Was there VAR? No, Chris, there was no VAR at all. But as soon as the match concluded, the Austrians began their protests and demanded a rematch. Reasons included. One, manhandling of Austrian players. Two, Peruvian fans storming the pitch. Three, a Peruvian spectator with a revolver. Four, because the fields did not meet the requirements for a football game among other complaints. Well, okay, can, can we focus on the uh, the manhandling of Austrian players and the crowd? Yeah, I like. I don't have any more information for you, Chris. <laughs> but there does seem to be have been a fair bit of manhandling, which like, I don't think was unique to this particular match. I think there was a, a no. generally a lot of manhandling in football at the early Olympic Games. You know, you, you say about the Peruvian fans storing the pitch. Again, not the first time that this has happened. And I really doubt this is the first time that a spectator has waved a revolver about either. Like, I imagine that this would be quite quite a common occurrence. And as for the field did not meet the requirements for a football game, they didn't seem to have that issue going into extra time when they were too all. Amazingly, Chris, without hearing the Peruvian team's defence, because they got caught up behind a German parade, uh, the Olympic Committee agreed with the Austrians (laughs) and a rematch was scheduled. The Peruvians were furious and the entire Peruvian Olympic team left Germany, along with the entire Colombian Olympic team, out of solidarity. Wow. Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, and Mexico also expressed their solidarity, but more verbally than, you know, actually doing anything. The final itself wasn't as eventful. It was Italy versus Austria. Boo, boo. With Italy winning 2-1. Grand. The only thing left to note... Uh, is just to mention that Italy in their opening match against Team USA 
um, an Italian player, Achille Piccini, was nearly sent off after committing a foul. But why do you think it was only nearly and not actually, Chris? Um, what, what saved him from being sent off? Ah, oh, was it something to do with intimidation? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it certainly was an extreme form of intimidation. Two of the other Italian players physically restrained the German ref. Um <laughs> So that he was physically unable to send Puccini off. And then just like a venture was like, okay, fine, fine, let go of me. Fine, we'll just continue playing. What? And this was happening in Germany. This is happening in Germany. And, I mean, and, and, and then the German, German Italian. The German reference is like, nope, okay, it's grand. You know, you gotta admire that. Standing up to the Germans in their home country like that. Chris, not yeah. a lot has changed in football, if you ask me. Someone who doesn't watch football. Uh, to be fair, I don't think I've seen that happen in football. <laughs> the Olympia film, they had extended highlights of the final between Italy and Austria, which, as you said, was not particularly outstanding in terms of memorable moments, uh, except for the first half when the Italian keeper was laid flat out by what seemed to be a kick to the head from an Austrian uh, attacker as they tried to dive for the ball. He... Looked pretty knocked out, but after a physio or doctor poured some water on him, he was grand and continued because back then there were no substitutes. Uh, went So they really needed that keeper. And yeah, as he said, it was one all. Uh, went into extra time and then Italy scored the winning goal to win gold. Sticking with the team sports on grass at the major or at the main Olympic stadium, Handball made its debut at the Olympics, Ruth. Ooh. And it would be a debut and the end for outdoor handball or field handball because it had its one and only appearance in 1936. A very popular sport in Germany. I think we've spoken about this in the podcast before. A lot of contention between the Germans and the Danes as to who created it. Back at this time, it was all about the outdoor handball, which on a football pitch uh, doesn't really look like handball as it is nowadays. I think it would irritate me a lot to play it because the the goals, uh, although they are larger and the size of football goals, are very far from uh, where the players can actually shoot from because there is a large goalkeeper's area. and So it looks a bit dodgy anyway. Every sport has to start somewhere. And <laughs> at, these, uh, at these games... Uh, six teams competed. Uh, Germany ended up winning gold after beating everyone <laughs> quite convincingly for the most part. Their closest game came in the final game against Austria, which was 10-6. So Germany won gold, Austria silver, and Switzerland bronze. Then there was field hockey on the same pitch again. This time, Germany did not win. And it was our old friends, India, who managed to storm to gold. Three in a row. Three in a row. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what I really liked about this was in the Olympia film. Great extended highlights, commentary as well as the game goes on. Brilliant footage. And it shows two of the goals scored. So the Indian opening goal, Germany's equaliser. And then at the end, slow motion India in attack as they storm towards the goal, cross the ball across the face of goal. One save is made. And as the players are going in to try and get the rebound, the footage ends. 
No commentary about who wins gold, what the final score was, or anything like that. And this is very unusual, Ruth, because in Olympia, whenever there is commentary, it's usually going to tell you who wins, <laughs> even if it's not the Germans. And they, to be fair, there's a lot of non-German victories in these films. But for some weird reason, when it comes to the Indians beating Germany in hockey, no result given. Didn't this happen in the South African World Cup? North Korea versus Brazil. In North Korea, <laughs> there, there was, there was, um, a, 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 they, they decided to stop um, the broadcast. <laughs> Well, that's what you're being compared to. Uh, just again, I, I just want to clarify, I'm really l laying the blame at Hitler here. I don't think he's a good guy. I think he might be a bit of a fascist. These are some hot takes, Ruth. I, I, I know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's 2021. I am. My filter is off. I'm calling <laughs> it as I see it. Mentioning the three in a row... Oh yeah! By the way, India India one two one. Yeah, 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 and they got the gold. Yeah. Uh, it was great. But did you know that there was a demonstration of kabaddi, 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 kabaddi? Yes. At the at the at the Berlin Games, a sport that you brought in in the second Olympiad and kabaddi, replaced kabaddi, wrestling kabaddi. with. Yes. Yeah. So it, it it has precedence when we approach the IOC with our new improved sporting schedule we can say well do you know what like it was in berlin 1936 as a demonstration sport it wasn't the only indian demonstration sport though because the same people that displayed kabaddi also kabaddi, dem kabaddi, kabaddi. also demonstrated malakam you know what malakam is i'm gonna guess it's a kind of wrestling not quite it's indian pole yoga Ooh. and they demonstrated this at the games alongside kabaddi Hitler was so impressed that he gave them gold medals. <laughs> and so that was not India's only gold medal, the hockey at these games. Uh, not recorded, of course, the uh, Malakam demonstration gold medals. They were more as a token of appreciation. So as we approach the end, I just want to share more admiration for these films. And what really stands out to me in events such as the pole vault, which, by the way, the pole vault, I think, was a particularly interesting event because you got a feeling for what we've spoken about in the past when you have to vault over four meters and then land in a sand pit, which, you know, my thrice operated knee would not enjoy. And not only landing out of four meters into a, a shallow sand pit, but the camera work was phenomenal yet again. And the event itself, over five hours. So uh. <laughs> it was well in the dark. After five hours, there were still five athletes remaining, two Japanese and three Americans. In the end, it came down to uh, Shuhai Nishida, and Earl Meadows, and Earl Meadows won gold. But what I really liked about the camera work here is that it was so close to the jumps, like really right up in the athletes' faces. And it made me wonder, because you saw this throughout the two films, like how were they actually recording this? I mean, it's all well and good when you're recording close-ups of nude men getting massages and having water drained over their face but what about when they're in competitive action is it not somewhat bothersome uh, there's a great example in the sailing 
where, again, you've got better footage than you have nowadays, close-ups, and... But I was wondering, are they on the boats with them? Surely in an event where weight and movement on the boats is so important, having a camera person on there is surely some kind of hindrance. It was the same in the cycling and in the rowing. Uh, perhaps they were just done separately while they were training these close-ups and then mixed in with the actual race footage later on. Either way, great camera work, great films. Good job, guys. That was girls. a woman, Eleni Rufusel, who lived to 101 years old. Oh, congratulations. Uh, dead now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another amazing woman of the games. Little <laughs> <laughs> <Well>, segue. <laughs> that's that's going to have to stick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Elder Home. Eleanor Holm. Yeah. An American swimmer who had won gold during the 1932 LA Games in the 100 metre backstroke. In that particular finals race, the defending champion from the Netherlands had to pull out when she uh, required urgent medical attention and brought to hospital to be treated for blood poisoning after a mosquito bite. Oi. But that's all old news. That was 1932. This is 1936. Um, Eleanor Holm is now the defending champion of the 100 metre backstroke. And she's built up a little bit of a reputation even in Hollywood because you'll remember from our last Olympopod all the way back in 2020 that at the LA Games, quite a few of the stars were recruited by different um, production companies and she was one of these. But anyway, 1936, she's qualified. Uh, she's hot favourite for a second gold. But on the boat over to Germany, she attended a little drink soiree and by some accounts, and we do have to stress by some accounts, she got absolutely plastered. And the next day, the American Olympic doctor labelled her as an acute alcoholic and Avery Brundage boo kicked her off the Olympic team. Unbelievable. Now, Eleanor has a different story. In her own words, she says, This chaperone came up to me and told me it was time to go to bed. God, it was about nine o'clock and he wants to go down in that basement to sleep anyway. So I said to her, Oh, is it really bedtime? Did you make the Olympic team or did I? I had had a few glasses of champagne. So she went to Brundage and complained that I was setting a bad example for the team and they got together and told me the next morning that I was fired. I was heartbroken. Lot to unpack there. <laughs> anyway, her teammates tried in vain to have the expulsion overturned, but it was no good and she had to watch the 100 metre backstroke from the stands. Decades later, she'd tell fellow Olympian Dave Syme that Avery Brundage had propositioned her, she had rebuffed his advances and he carried a grudge uh, because of that. Christopher, it's not all bad news. Oh. Because, because she did go back to her burgeoning Hollywood career and in 1938, she appeared in, can you guess what film franchise, Chris? Oh, was it the Tarzan franchise, Ruth? <laughs> it was the Tarzan uh, franchise. She featured in Tarzan's Revenge. And in that film, her co-star was Glenn Morris, an Olympic decathlete. Because as we know, as we have referenced throughout these Olympopods, since, I believe, 1928, maybe even, did we talk about this in 1924 even? I, I'm not sure. There's, there have been an awful lot of um, Olympic athletes who have turned up in Tarzan on films beginning to believe that should be a tradition we reignite and just every four years have a tarzan film which is 
cast with Olympic champions. Absolutely, I'm for it. Just for a laugh. I mean, it'd be an absolute flop in the box office, but maybe it goes directly to Netflix or directly to the Olympic Channel. I was just about to say, this can be an offshoot of the Olympic Channel. There you go. Eleanor Holm did manage to do some swimming one in Berlin, though. Did she? She did, as uh, apparently... No, did, did, did she, Chris? Did she? Like, who, who, I want to know I want to know your sources. But anyway, go on. My, my, tell us, my, tell us. my source here is the very reputable David Goldblatt. <laughs> Okay, that is quite rapid. And okay. the Games, Global History of the Olympics. And David uh, claims here that Eleanor Holm was swimming naked in the pool of Hermann Goering's palace during one of his lavish parties during the Olympic Games. And, well, I think that's a nice way to tie it all up. This Olympipod began with Nazis and nudity. It ends with nudity in a Nazi's pool. Yeah, I, ju- I just want to say that like this seems to be a bit of a double standard here that like we're kind of, you're kind of shaming her for no. being naked in a pool when like you know there was there was a lot of nudity. No, I, I, I am all for nudity. There's no shame here whatsoever. I'm just happy she got to show off. Oh, her. You've been in Sweden too long. Chris. I'm happy she got to share her talents in Berlin at some point. She got to swim in Berlin. Okay, well done, Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs> And we're going to wrap up, as we usually do, with the Sports Swap. Sports Swap, Sports Swap. First Sports Swap of 2021. So I really should have prepared a bit better. Oh, yes. <laughs> to, set this, to set the standards of the rest of the year, of, the, of this Olympic year 2021. I know what I want to kick out. Of course you do. No uh, doubts there. No. Go on. Yeah. And, and in fact, you kind of mentioned a reason briefly which is so i'm getting i'm getting rid of sailing which i know like <laughs> i know this is really bad move for ireland but like i'm i i just think it's not a particularly exciting thing to watch and um, it's mm. particularly for the spectators on the ground <laughs> like it's it's just <laughs> it's just not really <laughs> I know it's been there since the very start, yeah. since 1896, but like, I'm just not feeling it, Chris. And if like the best, if the best footage we ever got was in Berlin 1936, I mean, I think this just should just be a sign that maybe this is not working out for us, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think I, I remember during the last Olympics, there was an interview with Annalise Murphy's family Annalise Murphy won a silver medal for Ireland in Rio 2016 and yeah they're on the coast and can only really follow it with like GPS trackers yeah uh, not not so thrilling and there was great footage in these Olympics and a part of the footage was Adolf Hitler going to Kiel so in the north of Germany where the event was taking place Kiel for any handball listeners to the Olympipod is one of the well the most famous handball city in germany but they had the olympic sailing there and literally just has shots of hitler with binoculars just looking out onto boats in the sea and unfortunately for him they didn't even have the flags on the sails back then just the numbers of the competitors so even less thrilling than it is nowadays and you know what my other issue is and like i know we've brought in some sports which do kind of require cities to have certain things like giant mountains for mountain running and stuff like that but like it always sort of just bothers me that like the sailing presumably it has to be on sea or can we do it on lakes uh, has it ever probably has to so then a landlocked country what are they going to do put it in another country so i just think it's it's very like what if 
I don't know, Ethiopia wanted to host the Olympics. Where are they going to have the sailing? So I just think it's very restrictive. And they now, like, sailing now has a huge Grand Prix with a lot of investment. So they have that. It's not as if, like, they don't have something. The only losers here are Ireland. I'm willing to take that hit to bring in another sport. Ruth. Yeah. I've just done some some research here yeah. to, to find out the answer to whether there has been a sailing event on a lake. And... The answer is... Don't keep me hanging, Chris. Yes. Yes. Okay. When? Uh, So, and that was in the Montreal Olympics in 1976. It took place in the Great Lakes of Kingston, Ontario, making it the first and only time the sailing competitions took place in freshwater. And were, like, did people like it? (laughs) Do we have any information about that? So I'm guessing no, but they didn't. Anyone, uh, anyone who did watch it at the time, Dick Pound, if you're listening, get in touch. <laughs> Tell us, was it a success? Dick Pound, IOC vice president, of course, who is Canadian and I think had a part to play in 1976, which we'll find out more about. In 1976. In- 1976. 1976. Yeah. Anyway, so um, I have, so I've kicked that out. Um, okay. What are you bringing in? I have two ideas, right? So we've kicked out golf. Uh, and just and just before the most recent lockdown, I won a really resounding victory against my uh, seven-year-old niece and five-year-old nephew in uh, crazy golf, rainforest golf. And there's a lot of skill to it. Like a lot of people think like, oh, Ruth was a not just luck and also playing against you know, small children. And I would say, no, there was a lot of skill to it. Like I looked the lay of the land, like there's lots of like bumps and stuff. And it's just very exciting because like sometimes skulls come up and they're, they laugh at you and, you know, you have to hit one. There were some animatronic monkeys going around as well. So anyway, I just think crazy golf, it's pretty crazy and it's really exciting to watch. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we bring that in, but like there could definitely be a pitch and putch element since we took out golf so just just a pitching event no wait a pushing event there could be a pushing event we don't want pitching a pushing event is an option but then i was thinking do i need to bring in some sort of water-based sport so i was researching what water sports are there and you actually said every sport has to start somewhere um (laughs) no (laughs) so i just happened to come across horse surfing and you know we've talked about horses as well quite a lot in this uh episode and basically what it seems is you've got one person on a horse you've got one person on a surfboard that you're the sky and the surfboard or the woman because this could be a a cross-gender game has to hold on to a, a rope that the person on the horse has and then they just run i don't really know about the ins and the outs of this sport but i'm just wondering is there something there for us chris uh a short answer no (laughs) sorry our guests in the last uh one asked could they bring in dogs like (laughs) for not not reason and your answer to them was no which is why they chose orienteering (laughs) ruth it's your go you can do whatever you want (laughs) i'd I'd like to learn a little bit more about horse surfing maybe it's not the Mm. right time to bring it in is there potential for pushing i feel like that would have like a lot of appeal and it would have a lot more appeal than golf i think if you're if you're going to bring in putting then i think your first idea of crazy golf is even uh better yeah 
yeah add some wildness into it you know but like when you think about um equestrian uh show jumping like there's there's people whose jobs it is to essentially create the crazy golf courses of horses so yeah. um it would be roughly similar we would have world famous crazy golf setters great way to showcase your city and your nation as a host city uh you could you know make it like at the Dublin Horse Show, we always have like jumps that look, you know, like ancient Ireland or a Irish phone box. Um, so you know, if you had <gasps> crazy golf, like you could put like your country's heritage yeah. as something that you had to hit through or around or stuff like that. I just think it would be a lot more entertaining to watch. It would require a lot of skill. Yeah, I think I'm just going to put in putting. There has to be, I, I feel like if we call it crazy golf, people won't buy into it. I think we need to find... I, I think no matter what you call it, it probably won't last long. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about we call it, instead of crazy golf, extreme golf yes ultimate golf ultimate golf okay ultimate golf that's what we're, yeah yeah it might fool the golf fans into thinking yeah exactly i think i think this is going to get a lot of support i actually think it will be yeah i think it's going to be good for the olympics and good for sport and good for our podcast only time will tell <laughs> ruth only time will tell so ended the 11th olympiad um with the anticipation that they would be moving on in 1940 to Tokyo. And I don't know if we should be taking anything from it, that 1940 Tokyo never took place. We'll see you on the next Olympopod. Bye.